Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. We're back, we're back. Thanks for joining us again for episode five, season two of the Pre-Hospital Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Sinead Keane and Dr. Gio Krakalici about Fem Feedback a project which assists ambulance and air ambulance colleagues with patient follow-up. I'm a strong believer in following up on patient outcomes, both good and bad, and as someone that does so informally and haphazardly, I really enjoyed speaking to Sinead and Gio about how they've managed to establish a method of doing so properly. Before we get into it, do you want to learn more about the fundamentals of 12-lead ECG interpretation? For those of you who do, you'll be thrilled to know we've recently developed a series of short ECG Essentials videos as part of the pre-learning for our pre-hospital and emergency department ECG course. All the videos are open access and available on our website under the FedEx course tab, so please go check them out. Right, plug's done, let's get into the episode. guys thanks for joining me uh we're back on the pre-hostel podcast and today i'm talking to Sinead Keane and dr gio krakalici about a project they're involved in called fem feedback uh, instead of trying to uh, introduce you guys and messing it up um Sinead, can i ask you to introduce yourself and uh, just tell us a bit about what you do and how you got involved with the project is that right yeah of course uh so my name's Sinead Keane um i am currently the higher education and clinical practice lead in the east of england uh my Paramedic journey started back in 2012 in CCAM. I moved over to uh, East in 2017. That's the last year I've been working in education and currently trying to improve uh, some of our education and journeys for our staff. Um, I got involved in the FEM Feedback Project back in 2018 when Geo on this uh, gave me some feedback in the pilot phase of this project. Um, for me, feedback and actually learning and learning from our incidences and debriefing is is quite important to me and actually how it 
improves us as clinicians and and the journey that we need to go through and um, so when the opportunity came up to become involved in this project I absolutely grabbed it um, and wanted to help develop the actual project and push forward getting this feedback and this formalized feedback across the trust. Nice one cheers so you actually met Geo um, as part of the project? Yeah, right? back in yeah. 2018 you did my first debrief um, write up Oh, nice, nice, perfect. The perfect people to talk to you then. And um, and Geo, can you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Hi, my name's Geo Krakalici. I'm an emergency medicine registrar at Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. I originally became involved in Fem Feedback back in 2018. Uh, Matt Snowsill, who originally set this project up, um, set it up at Harlow Hospital, um, and was he was rotating onto another another site, and and I took over. Uh, from him as a site lead in in Harlow um, for 12 months. From there, I went on to become the the hospital's lead, looking at um, our expansion into into other hospitals uh, throughout the region. And then in in more recent months, I've taken a little bit of a step back from the project just to to concentrate on on getting through my exams, um, but hope to be more involved again uh, in the near future. Thanks for that. Um... Thanks, guys, for introducing yourselves. Um, and I think so. So most people who are listening have probably seen something about the project on Twitter um, or on another social media platform and know a bit about kind of what you guys are doing. Um, but for those that haven't, I wonder if you could give us a bit of an introduction into what is Fem Feedback uh, and kind of where did it come from? Is that right? Yeah. So uh, Matt Snowsill, who uh, created and dreamt up this project and has put a lot of time and effort into it. Um, saw that there was a, a big gap between pre-hospital um, and hospital clinicians. So as an ED doctor, Matt had lots of interactions with ambulance crews and, and patients coming into the hospital. Um, but never there was never any formal feedback. So he, you know, he saw that there was a big gap between actually what crews learn and what they get from finding out and understanding what happened to their patient or the process of disease or, you know, the actual outcome of that patient and how it could affect them or how actually could they learn from that and get that feedback and get that complete feedback loop. Um, and he saw that once ambulance crews brought patients in, it stopped there. Uh, there was the occasional informal feedback where crews would potentially later that day speak to the doctor they brought the patient into or a nurse and, and find out informally what had gone on. But there was never any formal feedback with any, you know, any sort of learning outcomes and, and objectives to get that learning from that learning journey from that patient and actually how we can improve and, and change our potentially change our mindset or change our behaviors or you know all those human factors that go with those jobs and especially some of the patients that you may bring in that have got significant injuries and there's lots of human factors there's a lot of other things that are going on that actually you know for that individual potentially emotionally and not just you know those aspects those are the parts that we're missing out on and actually how can you improve if you don't know what's going on with that patient and you're only sort of uh you're only identifying small key points so so Matt wanted to put in a formalized process that actually gave those clinicians feedback and actually took the that patient from the right start of their journey where the ambulance crew attends and turns up to actually finding out how they've been treated and actually the outcome of that patient during their hospital stay and journey throughout that process. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because it's something I have experienced a lot myself in practice. So, you know, I, I follow up patients and sometimes you can go and talk to, like you say, you go to hospital later that day and sometimes you can go and talk to the patient and, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll more than happily tell you what's happened and they'll be, they'll kind of consent to you looking at their scans and things. Um, but similarly, for patients, like you say, who are unwell or have gone on to surgery or they're unconscious because um, they're anaesthetized or whatever, and they're the patients that often you want to find out about to, to understand whether the interventions that you've made or that you didn't make um, were appropriate. And, you know, it's not difficult to get that information informally, but it's probably not the appropriate way to do it. Um, however, whenever, whenever I've tried to find a way of doing that more formally, there's a lot of kind of red tape and barriers that comes in the way of that. Um, so it's, it's awesome that you guys have managed to put something together that kind of um, goes some way to dealing with that. Um, and it's interesting. So certainly from a pre-hostel perspective, I think most people will be able to relate with that frustration. Um, but Gio, I wonder from an in-hospital perspective uh, and a kind of medical perspective, um, is that something that you guys experience as well? Or as doctors and in-hospital staff, do you find it's easier to follow patients up and get that feedback? Um, or is it a similar thing? I think it probably has started to, to get a little bit easier. It's definitely something I've seen change over the 10 years or so that I've been a doctor. Um, so going back to when I started, most hospitals were, were still on almost exclusively paper records. And, you know, you'd see a patient in the emergency department, they disappear off to the ward. And unless you knew, can kind of kept track of what ward they'd gone to or physically went to the ward and, and you know, asked to see the paper, the paper notes, it could be quite hard. It was, it was possible, but it, it could be quite difficult and really time consuming to, to do that. And it's really, it's really been um, interesting how it's changed my practice as electronic patient notes have, have started to become more common and it's become a lot more easy uh, for me to just review the, the patients that I've seen recently, to follow up on interesting patients uh, and to review all of that in a, in a much more easy way. We certainly used to have those, those corridor conversations that, that you mentioned, that, that informal feedback where you'd you know, you'd bump into the doctor on one of the wards or you'd bump into the intensive care doctor and say, oh, how's my patient getting on from a couple of days ago? And, and electronic patient notes have made that, made that a lot easier. So I think it's something we've started to see the benefit of in hospital. Um, but a lot of the difficulty around doing that in the same way pre-hospital comes with the red tape around transferring information between, between different organisations. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's something we'll come on to when we try and tackle that and um, the complexity of that data. Um, but so just for just to kind of get more of an understanding then, how so how does it work? So you know, a um, ambulance crew will go to a patient, or a HEMS crew, or a pre-hospital team will go to a patient. They'll treat them and they'll take them to hospital, um, hand them over, and that patient continues their journey in hospital. Um, so how does it work then for that pre-hospital team to access uh, that information and learn from that? So for us, they, there is a protocol. So we have now um, FEM feedback facilitators, uh, which have done a course, a, a one day course to be facilitators. So you would identify that patient and you would normally record their hospital number. Um, and you would then make contact with uh, the FEM feedback facilitator um, and say, I would like a follow up or, or sort of to learn about the outcomes from this patient. Now these individuals have to fit into certain criteria. So they need to either be, it's got to be a diagnostic uncertainty or a traumatic event or something that's causing someone sort of emotional, mental um, well-being sort of 
issues so we need to look into that so you sit down with the facilitator you need to discuss why you want feedback and obviously the the reasons behind it and also at that point set out some learning objectives so what what do you want to know from that patient's outcomes and what will you learn from it so you can start that reflection process at that point and actually thinking what do you want to know from this and, and what will you take away and learn from it so once that that initial sort of setup's been done and and we know what you want we will then send it off to the hospital feedback team so the patient obviously what the incident is and what sort of the learning objectives are because uh geo could probably give me a whole rundown of bloods or different things actually if that's not important to that feedback that's a lot of work that doesn't necessarily have to be in there and it may not be relevant to that so we send them back a form with the sort of learning objectives about what we want to understand and, and why um, and we will then send that off to the hospital team and wait for them to do their report and send it back to the facilitator team. Oh, and so then, so the, the report comes to you, Geo, or, or someone similar. And so I guess, so at first it's interesting that, like you say, you have those specific objectives but you could, because as you kind of mentioned, you can see um, that you could get a lot of information, which partly isn't uh, important for that feedback process. But also, I guess, you don't want to be using sensitive data that's not relevant, um, I suppose. So that's, that's interesting that, that it's kind of formalised like that. Um, but so Gio, that kind of comes to you and then and then where does it go from there? Um, so the, the hospital team take the take the request, take those those learning objectives. Um, and the first thing we double check is to make sure that the patient hasn't hasn't opted out. I think when we come on to talk about some of the data protection issues, you'll you'll understand how the, the system works, but essentially we don't have to get individual patient consent. Um, but what there is is there's a process by which patients can can specify that they don't want to be part of the project. Um, I'm not aware that we've had any patients to date who've, who've done that, but the first and the key step is we make sure that the patient isn't on our, our list of patients who've said they, they don't want to be involved. Once we've done that, we're then able to access their, their medical records um, and review that information kind of compared to, compared to the learning objectives and, and put together a report. And this can actually be quite a, a complicated and time-consuming process. So I know the, the whole process initially about talking to a facilitator needing to, to formalize it only accepting certain forms of requests seems quite restrictive um, but there's good reason for that it can often take it often took me an hour sometimes even two hours to put together um, to put together a report and um, to go through all the patient notes to pull out the the relevant information and we could include an awful lot there so not just a text-based report but often um, including images from x-rays, images from CT scans, including and explaining blood results that were, that were relevant as well. And we tend to focus on the emergency department care, the patient's diagnosis, but also potentially talk a little bit about what happened to them further down the line and, and, and the, bigger, the bigger outcomes. The key thing from a hospital point of view is that I'm not a pre-hospital clinician. I'm, I'm not a paramedic. I don't operate in that environment. I don't know the details of, of local policies, I don't know the details of JR Calc. So it's not my position to pass judgment on the, the care that's happened pre-hospital. My, my role is to, is to give information on what's happened to the patient in hospital um, and to pass that information back to the facilitator. And then the facilitator and the clinician who, who saw that patient can have a chat, they can go through that case, they can talk about 
whether the whether the care was the the right care, whether there were things that could be changed or improved. But it's not for me as a as a hospital clinician to say, oh, you got this wrong. You should have done that instead. You know, that's 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 for someone who works within that service to explore. Yeah, it's interesting to to recognise the disparity between our different kind of specialties, I suppose, isn't it? Because you kind of think for pre-hospital people, you just think, well, we do one form for a patient. So it's quite easy for us to just to pull up that record theoretically and just look at what happened to them outside of hospital. And whereas I appreciate in hospital, um, there's thousands of forms and like you say, scans and results and things to, to dig through. Um, so I can appreciate how that'd be a lot of work. Um, and then, like you say, that, that kind of... Um, that that difference in practice is interesting because like I say if I informally follow up a patient um, sometimes I'll speak to a um, a relatively new person in the hospital and they'll give me some basic information that that maybe doesn't meet what I'm after and sometimes you'll speak to one of the consultants that's been there 10 years and they'll tell me some complex gas result that um, I just kind of nod and smile and don't really understand what they're talking about and so it probably doesn't feed into my um, learning particularly well so so how does it then work um, Sinead as a facilitator to to interpret that information or kind of I don't know translate it and deliver it to the learner in an effective way so we have to firstly know that everybody is an individual learner and understanding how that person learns and takes feedback is is an important part of this process uh, firstly but once the facilitator re receives the report they'll obviously read through it and um, they'll look at you know, key points and obviously potentially do some research themselves to help understand and break down for that individual what it is that GI or whomever is reported back on. Um, you'll then arrange a meeting and actually you'll sit down and sometimes the patient report form will be used as well to actually utilise to understand how they started their journey, what happened during the pre-hospital phase and then obviously the report we received from hospital, so the treatment or everything that they've had and actually we can see what's gone on sort of throughout the whole process so it's actually quite good to sit down and sort of debrief that but we go through the whole process so we will talk through their learning objectives and actually see if the reports met those key points we'll break down what the reports has said if it's there's anything in there that they don't understand or they need further uh, you know further evidence we'll signpost them to some more research or some places where they can get some more information um, and then we'll we'll do a debrief through that. So actually, what have they taken from that? From reading that report, what have they understood? Actually, what are, have their learning objectives been met? Would they change potentially their practice or actually what reflection will they take from this point? And, and sometimes it's someone will then go away and do a written reflection. Uh, some of it is that say they'll go and listen to a podcast about a, a certain disease that they're, they're not sure about. Um, but it's about enabling them to have that outside thinking and actually reflect on, the, on their own practice and say, you know, because we all know that some patients don't typically and, you know, atypically present. So, you know, it's understanding that the process of that disease or, or actually the, the patterns of those injuries and how they relate and, and would you change your practice? And if so, how would you change your practice in the future? Or actually, you know, how can you reflect on this and, and would you do something slightly different in the future? So once they've done all that, there's a feedback form for the, the individual to write and actually take back and, and put down their points that they've learned and what they've taken away from the experience. Yeah, nice. So already it's, it's more of a, 
in-depth process than I'd imagined, to be honest, but, you know, in a good way. Um, it sounds like a really decent kind of structured um, learning process and one that is um, kind of positive. You know, I think historically there's always been this concern, well, certainly the, the kind of concern that I've come up with uh, in terms of this kind of context is um, that you might identify that you've done something wrong and, and you know, something bad would happen as a result of that. So it's, it's, it's great to hear that there's this kind of in-depth learning process that is a positive one, <clears throat> excuse me, um, kind of influencing potentially kind of decision making and outcomes as a result of that. Um, you, you kind of mentioned the, there's certain criteria um, that has to be met for this process to happen, um, which br brings us on to, I guess, the legality, because Gio, you also mentioned this thing about um, not having to have patient's consent. Um, which obviously applies to those who are more critically unwell, I suppose. Um, and so what, can you just explain a little bit about that criteria? Um, what has to be met for this process to begin and uh, how it is that patients don't have to consent in certain circumstances? Sure. So the, the normal process of transferring patient-specific data between any organisations normally requires that patient's consent. And probably the situation that is most obvious in, in that is I think we'll, we'll both be able to relate to is normally when you're doing a safeguarding referral and for example there's always a box on there that says have you got the patient's the patient's consent because what you're doing there is you're transferring their information to a, to an external organization now the difficulty there is that consenting patients to this project uh, on an individual case-by-case -case basis was was going to be really challenging and um, often those patients have been discharged from hospital if they've been discharged from hospital, there's, there's all kinds of restrictions that prevent us basically phoning them up and cold calling them and saying, would you consent? Sometimes the patients have been transferred to another hospital and we've got no way of getting to, in touch with them at all. Um, or sometimes, unfortunately, the patients may not have survived the, their injuries or, or their illness um, and will have no way of, of, obtaining, of obtaining their consent in those circumstances. So... What we did is um, Matt approached the Health Research Authority Confidentiality Advisory Group, um, who, who he approached in order to work out how to do that. And they've essentially given us authorization on a national level um, to allow this transfer of information for this specific purpose um, without requiring patient consent. Now, there's a number of conditions to that. Um, so at the moment, we're only allowed to operate between specific named hospitals and specific named pre-hospital organisations. And we've had to jump through a bunch of hoops, both with those pre-hospital organisations and, and with those hospitals to ensure that there is a, a good data governance process in place in both of those, both of those places. So we're sure that that data is going to someone um, who's going to take good care of it. Um, one of the biggest barriers has been that um, the NHS has got something called a data protection toolkit. So every hospital, every ambulance service, every pre-hospital charity has a data protection toolkit that they have to complete. And they essentially get a, a pass or a not quite a pass, you need to still do some work or a fail on that. Um, and that's that's kind of reviewed every, every 12 months or so. And one of the criteria is that all of the organizations we work with have to have passed that, that data protection toolkit. We then inform patients that this project is going on through posters in the emergency department. And we make sure that they've got the information on how they can opt out of this project if they want to. So by contacting us directly, by writing to the hospital's patient panel or emailing the hospital's patient panel, 
um, or they can actually opt out now via the NHS spine. So in theory, by contacting their GP and having that recorded against their, their NHS number and um, that they opt out of projects like this. Um, that said, we've, we've, not had, we've not had patients opt out. Um, so there seems to be really good support from this from, from patients. Um, but making sure that we've got that framework in, in place to ensure we were transferring information safely, securely, and, and in a legal way was definitely complicated and took, took years to sort out. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> um, it's interesting that no one has opted out. And I wonder, just in terms of kind of rough numbers, have you, because the project's been going on for some time now, hasn't it? And I know it's kind of uh, only in a, it started from one hospital and I think you've expanded out a bit but it's, it's certainly only in one location geographically. Um, but having been going for a number of years, have you had a lot of uptake from it? I mean, is it, you know, the fact that no patients have opted out sounds like a really positive thing. Um, but I wonder on the background of how many patients, if that makes sense. Yeah, so Harlow Hospital, so Harlow Hospital sees over 100,000 patients in the emergency department every year. Um, so it'll be over 100,000 emergency department attendances. Um, so in the 12 months that we operated the pilot, uh, I think we had 59 requests. So just over one a week um, in terms of requests for feedback. Now, obviously, we're not, we're not approaching individual patients. So the, the better measure in terms of whether patients support this or not is the fact that 100,000 patients pass, well, more than 100,000, passed through that department, saw those posters, and didn't say, oh, actually, I don't want to be part of this. I'm going to contact them and, and opt out. Yeah, and I think it's kind of uh, reflective of what I see in practice. You know, like I mentioned before, I talk, I say to patients, you know, this is a, it's kind of, it, it would be interesting and beneficial for me to follow up what happened to you. And, I, you know, often I'm, I'm interested to see if you have a good outcome, as we all hope. And, you know, I've never had a patient that said, no, I don't want you to find out. And people are always quite... Um, receptive to that and actually often and I don't, I don't know what you find in practice as well I often find patients are surprised at the fact that we can't then find out how their journey went on. We have a patient uh, who has uh, helped us during this project a lovely gentleman called Gordon who um, openly discusses how he was so surprised to know that ambulance crews cannot find out. And, and once after his event, he had no idea that we couldn't find out. Um, and I think I've had it before where I've seen patients a year down the line, I'd see, saw them a year earlier and asked them and they couldn't believe that I wasn't able to find out what happened to them. You know, they generally, I would say, patients never say no, but also can't believe that we, we're not able to find out what has happened to them after we've normally taken them to hospital they they find that quite a shocking part and Gordon's quite a good advocate for us um, on the FEM page there's a video of that and of him discussing it and his opinions from the patient side. I was going to say I think I saw a video uh, they, you did a conference there didn't you is that a video of him yeah. and a paramedic that treated him? Yeah. yeah. Yeah I remember seeing that I'll stick a link to that in the in the show notes as well because it is a really interesting kind of perspective and so in terms of research then, so I know it's a kind of, it's a project you've been doing for a few years. I wonder if in terms of like research and audit, are you, I know you've mentioned that people are filling out feedback for you. Are they, you know, does that feed back into auditing the, the process and are you kind of collating that data and using it uh, in a way to, to kind of prove the benefit to, to other people that want to do a similar project or, 
or are you doing anything with that? Yeah, so at the moment we've got a, a couple of papers that are undergoing peer review and we hope that they will be published in the next in the next few months. Um, I mean, to briefly summarise, one of those is a is a feasibility paper talking about the um, the process that was required to get this set up and also looking at whether this is feasible with a set of um, debriefers, a set of facilitators who are essentially volunteers um, and a set of hospital doctors who are essentially volunteering their own time to, to write these reports. That looks at our first uh, 12 months worth of data and that's that's 59 cases that we, that we provided feedback on in the first 12 months. Um, it looks at the time it took us to produce those reports, um, which is clearly one of the one of the limiting factors when using a um, a team of hospital clinicians who are who are volunteering their time. As I'm sure as I'm sure is the same for paramedic raters, our, our raters are all over the place. When people are at work, is all over the place. We can often only access the computer systems we need to from physically in the hospital, um, and finding the time to complete those reports was was one of the big challenges. What we did find is that. Um, we got really good engagement when we repeat, completed the reports in, in less than 14 days. So when we were able to return a report to the facilitator in less than, in less than two weeks, um, we got 92% um, of those participants returned their, their feedback form. What we did see is engagement dropped off in the, in the handful of cases where it took us longer to return a report. Um, and that's really shaped our, our practice in terms of keeping that target really, really quite tight. So we've done a bit more analysis that shows that probably the optimal time is, is less than 12 days. And that's, in terms of training our hospital teams, that's something we're really focusing on is trying to make sure we've got robust enough hospital teams that have got enough people on them that we can get those reports returned to the clinician promptly. Um, because I think that, that provides the most value in terms of their, their reflective practice. Yeah, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And um, it's 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 good to see that you're kind of auditing that and, and feeding back into the process, um, which takes me on to the point of kind of CPD and CME and kind of continuing continuing education. How, how does that, in terms of, and I'm not sure, Geo, how it works in medicine. So obviously as healthcare professionals, we have CPD um, and I guess historically, it was just a matter of collating certificates of talks that you'd been to, which is a kind of dry way of showing your um, progression as a professional. And I think nowadays, you know, like we're talking on a podcast now, people attend webinars and they have alternate means of, of developing themselves. How does a project like this or, or someone's involvement with it feed into someone's CPD portfolio, um, certainly as, as paramedics? So... I'm, I'm involved in looking at a lot of NQP portfolios, actually, um, and seeing some of our NQPs who have been involved in this project and sought feedback. It, um, it's really helped them in actually terms of their reflection. So I've seen it in there and, and showing that particularly for some people, it's showing duty of candle. Uh, they've written about that and actually the importance of that and, and maintaining that as a professional. They've used it as a point of actual reflection. So you know, we can always reflect on, on what we know and what we've done and up to a certain point and, and use that as a reflection. But it was it was enabling staff to have a more holistic and well-rounded because actually they could reflect on their practice and what happened in that individual. Then they obviously got their feedback report and then they can reflect on actually the further and the outcome of patients and, and how their care and, and what they do and what impact and implications it has going forwards and actually now knowing and having those outcomes 
how they have learned and their learning journey and how it's continued and how it benefited them because they were able to reflect not only on their you know their decision making and and what they've done but actually how the patient has progressed and you know they were able to justify why they made those decisions because I think it's always sometimes hard when you're left guessing what actually happened to that patient once they they got to hospital and their onward journey and being able to see that and reflect on that has really improved actually some of their CPD and and, and what they benefit and how they learn from it and how they learn as clinicians because it's all about continuing our learning and our learning journey and this has really increased their ability to do so. Yeah, nice. And and so and so, Gia, from like a hospital perspective, the the in hospital staff that are involved in this project, does it similarly benefit them? Because you can imagine, kind of formulating a report on a patient is a kind of reflective learning journey in itself. But then engaging with pre hospital staff um, is does that kind of feedback feed into uh, the hospital staff's learning as well? Oh, definitely. And um, so certainly. We, we had a mix of clinicians involved in the, in the hospital teams. Um, so all different grades from, from doctors who've been qualified just a couple of years to, to people who've been practicing for, for 10 years um, and, and through to wider members of the, the multidisciplinary team within the, within the hospital as well. Um, it's it definitely spending a couple of hours really digging through a patient's notes, finding what, out what happened to them pre-hospital in the emergency department and then throughout their stay in hospital would always be a really interesting learning experience, even if that wasn't a patient whose care I'd been directly involved in. Um, that definitely fed into, into my professional development in terms of reflective practice. Um, but also there was opportunities there for, for more formal learning events. So for example, there were a couple of occasions where more junior colleagues went through and produced reports on, on cases that were a bit more complex. They wanted to discuss the reports with with me before they sent them out to the to the pre-hospital um, to the pre-hospital teams. So we'd sit down, go through the report, go through the case together, um, and they'd be able to do a, a case-based discussion for their for their portfolio and for their development as well, based on the report that they'd that they produced. And um, so it, it definitely, I definitely learned things put, putting these reports together, and I and I think my colleagues who who worked on them as well would would say the same. And it's interesting because it kind of feeds back into that. Um, so something I've noticed in practice is as a newer paramedic, there seemed to be a um, not a divide, but a clear difference in pre-hospital practice versus in-hospital practice. And as you kind of alluded to earlier, um, a lot of the time we don't know what you're doing in hospital and you don't know what we've done or what why we made the decisions we did outside of hospital. And as I've um, developed into kind of specialist practice, what I notice within the specialty that I work is that um, there's a lot more fluidity in that patient journey. Um, so there's a lot more similarities in what we're doing outside of hospital versus in hospital and moving through to intensive care, for instance. And ultimately, it's kind of strange that that's not <laughs> not the standard thing because it's that one person, one one patient that's undergoing that journey, and yet there's these kind of stark differences in the sections of their journey so it's interesting to hear how, how a project like that can kind of feed back into you know in developing an individual but I think also helping with a um, kind of overall understanding between specialties about what each other does does, does that make sense and so I guess if um, if you've got 
I don't know how many people you have from pre-hospitality and, and the A&E departments that are involved, but have you noticed a bit of an impact from the project in terms of a kind of general understanding of people, of what we do uh, in our different specialties? I definitely think so. Um, I think in medicine, we can, we can sometimes underappreciate the work that is done pre-hospital by, by paramedics and by, by the ambulance service. Um, we don't, actually get much in the way of formal teaching or, or training about about what you guys can do how you guys function when you're when you're out on the road um, and that's something we really have to choose to seek out ourselves because we're interested um, which is, which is a shame you will you'll sometimes come across colleagues who you know want to criticize things that have happened pre-hospital but actually don't really understand the, the limitations or the difficult environment within within which you guys are you guys are working they'll they'll say why didn't why didn't they give x drug why didn't they do y you will x drug isn't a drug that they have on, on on the back of an ambulance so that that you know they couldn't that, that can't happen and i think any project which brings us closer together and helps us understand how practice is happening on both sides of that but also helps us understand some of the the challenges and and the limitations and but also some of the, the skills that you guys really can deliver um pre-hospital is is really important and has, has definitely helped this has definitely helped develop my understanding of that and i, and I hope it's helped involve um, develop the understanding of, of others who've been been involved in the project yeah and i guess i mean I, that's one side to it, isn't it but i guess there's also those legitimate challenges and i don't know if Sinead you could comment on that but certainly i've had um challenges from in-hostel staff that like you say came from a lack of understanding of what we can or cannot do but also legitimate challenges of like, why did you not provide this intervention and you kind of put your hands up and think well you know I didn't for whatever reason I didn't because I didn't understand or I didn't think of it and I guess that's kind of an important factor for us because you can drop you know the other side of it is you can bring a patient to hospital and uh, walk away patting yourself on the back think you've done a great job but ultimately you've uh, treated a pneumonia as a heart failure or you know these kind of things that without that feedback you just you wouldn't know yeah and I think that's what's really important with this is it's actually as you point out you, you think you've done one thing and actually potentially and especially not understanding necessarily and we, we have lots of uh, people in the ambulance service who are training and developing and and haven't necessarily you know it's a really good learning point for them but I think this project itself rather than having that sort of feeling like you're being legitimately questioned or challenged or having it as a challenge or someone basically telling you you haven't done something right and um, because most of the doctors and all of everybody in the area is involved it kind of just changed some of the perceptions and the behaviors and actually it changed more of that you know, rather than people feeling like they've been accused of not doing something, being more of a learning point. So, oh, this hasn't happened. And it, it sort of changed some of those aspects, you know, not entirely, but it did. It, it made the whole A&E department and the relationships between both ambulance and the department more of a learning point. So actually, if crews were coming in and during handover, you know, they've given their handover and they haven't quite done something, it became a bit more of a conversation why why potentially have you not done this or what made you choose to do that rather than you've done this or you've done that it became more of a you know exp exploration and understanding and trying to learn so the doctor's trying to learn whilst why we've made that decision and vice versa us 
you know, under trying to understand why they need to know what we've done. So it became more of a learning environment rather than sometimes which can be a bit of a, a tough, difficult experience for all of us. If you have, as you say, the doctor doesn't understand or you potentially have made a decision that's incorrect for that patient and inappropriate. Yeah. And so, so you mentioned the, we spoke about audit and, and people are putting in their feedback. I wonder if you, and so you mentioned, um, was it Gordon, the, the patient who, yes. did he have a cardiac arrest? Is that right? He did. Yeah. From memory. Um, so you mentioned Gordon and his kind of feedback. Have you had much other patient kind of feedback um, or involvement in, in, you know, getting an understanding of what patients think of the project? Um, we have, but not from audit. We have from discussions, um, but we haven't. It is something that we are, as this project develops, that you know we'd be interested in gaining. Um, we're obviously gaining also and auditing some of the information from the facilitators as well, because I think from each part of this journey and this project is really important. And I'm sure Jerry agree. It's you know it's about the individual who is asking for the feedback. It's about how the facilitator and how they enable this journey. It's about the hospital report people people writing the actual reports and then it's also about the patient themselves um but uh, you know as I say we've still got things to do and challenges ahead of us at this present with this project so yeah. those are ideas but they're they're still on their way I'll, I'll come on to some of the stuff about the patient um patient views in a, in a second but just thinking about the the view the feedback that we're getting from those who've been involved in the project um so we've had really 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 positive feedback from the clinicians that have been been involved so across our first 12 months we got overall satisfaction of 97 percent. so 97 percent on their feedback survey said they were satisfied or very satisfied with the process overall um, there was a positive skew on the likelihood to change practice so not everyone said that they would change practice as a result of their debrief but most did um, one of the things that was really interesting so we went in with a high with the kind of hypothesis that the people who were most likely to change their practice would be the people who didn't think they'd got the right diagnosis, if that makes sense. So, so yeah, we asked yeah. people how, how well their diagnosis matched up with the eventual diagnosis, and we asked how likely they were to change practice. And it turned out those two things weren't correlated at all. Um, so people were learning from this whether they got the diagnosis right or wrong. So even if, even if they knew exactly what was right with the patient, people were still managing to find things that they would they would change that they would do differently that they would learn from um, which I thought was really really interesting this this is more than just a a system which tells you what was wrong with the patient it's a it's a whole it's a whole conversation a whole discussion around the totality of that patient's care and there's learning opportunities to be to be found on almost all of these cases yeah and it's, it's something that I uh, can relate to actually as well because you can it's not just, you know, sometimes you you provide an intervention that you think might have been wrong and that's an uncomfortable evening or restless night <laughs> afterwards. Um, but also you can, you know, I've had patients before where you think, I, I think I've done the right thing, um, but I'm really not sure. Um, and there's always that kind of voice in your head of um, doubt that you have made the right decision. Um, and so it's something I can relate to that just a bit of, even if you are right, some positive reinforcement to say you are and why you are and to kind of encourage that um, thinking is, is definitely a benefit as well, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, there's a whole well-being thing there as well. So um, paramedics self-report to the HCPC um, 
about mistakes that they feel they've made at a vastly higher rate than doctors or nurses. Um, mm. And I do wonder whether a bit of that is that never really, well, aside from the, those informal opportunities in the past, never really knowing what happened to your patient or never really being able to be 100% sure that you made the right decision in, in some situations. And that must be really tough. I mean, I, I go home worrying about patients that I've seen, but I'm in the fortunate position that I can go to work the next day and look them up and find out what happened and whether I did make the right, make the right decision. And I find it really difficult to, to practice in a setting where I couldn't easily access that information. Yeah, I think there's, there's certainly something to that. I've, I've had certainly less now that I'm more experienced, but as a newer paramedic, certainly cases where you think I've made some sort of devastating error, partly because it's, it's just, I've not, I'm just reflecting on that by myself. And so I don't have that perceived error in the context of the wider patient journey in which it turns out that what I did was such a small thing. Um, so that, I think that's part of it, but also, you know, I've, I've had kind of weeks where you just think, well, the only reason I'm going to know, the only way I'm going to know if I've made a devastating error is if I get contact from the coroner or, or, you know, a manager or someone saying I'm, I've been suspended because, and you just kind of sit and wait on it. And certainly I don't know your experience, Sinead, but I certainly think historically, even in my time in the ambulance service, there was a, um, partly there was a, a kind of belief that um, admitting error would lead to punitive action. But I think also the, the horror stories of where punitive action has occurred from mistakes, um, they're much louder than the stories about when that hasn't happened. And people like to you know, I don't know, naturally that, that kind of thing gets spread a lot, around a lot quicker than people that say, oh, I've made a mistake and a manager helped me learn from it and I moved on. I don't know your experience, Sinead, of that. Yeah, I remember when I started in, it was, you know, all of this, you make a mistake and that's it, you lose your registration. And yeah. people saying to me, I'm going to save you from paramedic jail and comments like that when <laughs> I first started. I remember being terrified of making a mistake. I think there is a big push to change the culture to make it a learning from incidents because actually we're all human we all make mistakes we all you know it's about learning from those and, and taking that forward and not punishing somebody for a, say a punitive mistake but I think it's still very much around unfortunately um, and it is something we are trying to change and it's about learning from that incident and and carrying that forward because actually that's the best outcome that could come from that action is actually learning and stopping it happening in the future rather than punishing that individual and as you say waiting for that day takes to come in to get that that email for your manager or that coroner's report that you've got to make or you know waiting for a phone call and I think probably all of us could say that we spent sleepless nights thinking I've made that mistake and spending probably the next couple of weeks just it hanging over your head waiting to hear something until you finally sort of think oh, it's been three weeks and I haven't heard and think surely surely by now I would have if it if it happens um, but yeah I, I think it's definitely something that we still need to push and, and keep going with changing that message. Yeah and it's I mean it's a it's a it's such a good project to be developing that culture and I think it's it's something like I say so I've I've kind of looked into it before and I know there'll be people across the country who have tried to develop similar things and as far as I understand there are similar kind of smaller projects that are occurring around the country and um, so I wonder if you but with your experience and what you've been through do you have any advice for people who might be trying to set something similar up within their service about how they could kind of go around doing that? 
Yeah, so I think if you're approaching this from a, a hospital perspective, the first thing you need to do is, is talk to your hospital with information government. And you're absolutely welcome to, to get in touch with us via our website. And I'm, I'm sure we've got thoughts and ideas about, about where to start. And um, we're really hoping that this will, this will develop significantly from a, from a national perspective um, over the next few years. Um, when we've when we've approached organisations on a on a national level, um, we've had really positive noises from them um, in terms of formalising this kind of thing across the across the whole country. I think we're we're probably still quite a long way from from getting there, but I do think that there is progress in the right direction, um, and I do think we we are likely to see probably within our careers we're likely to see this become more standardized and something that is that is more normal and that a framework exists for doing it that that hospitals and ambulance services can can plug into that standardized framework we're just not there quite quite yet no fair enough it's, it sounds like a a lot of work to do to be fair and it kind of it, it, you've largely answered it my, my final kind of question then was the the future of what you've got planned for the project so you want to kind of make it bigger make it more national um how how are you what are the kind of next steps certainly in the next year or two and um, do you do you plan to see that expand more um i know Sinead, you mentioned you you've set up some facilitator courses and kind of formalized that for people and um, what's the kind of immediate future for the project i think for us it's um obviously trying to go regional for the east of england um because we as I say, started in some of our hospitals within East and we would like to see it spread across our patch because actually all our staff should benefit from it. Um, and also, you know, we have been in discussions with others and, and in other areas that want, you know, especially hospitals that want to see it coming in their direction because they can see the benefit um, of it. So for us, the next couple of years is, is just expanding our current base and our hospital base. We've so we've got the facilitators trained now um, and we're looking obviously at running more courses to, to look at it getting trained. But our immediate goals is to uh, get our hospitals in place to expand within our region. So from, from a hospital point of view, COVID um, probably set us back uh, a little bit. Um, so I think that people suddenly didn't have the, the, the time and the energy to, to dedicate to, to setting this up. Um, it's a time consuming process to get each site on board. So, so as I mentioned right now, we still have to get each site, each hospital site named within the, within the specific approval that we've got to, to be able to share the data. And, and doing that improve, involves working with the information governance team at that hospital, involves getting approval from the local patient panel. It, it's a time consuming process and it can take a couple of years to get one hospital ready to go. Um, so, so that's, as Sinead said, I think the, the immediate challenge is increasing our pool of hospitals within the, within the east of England. Um, but there are other things that we're, we're exploring and, and other areas of the country that we're, we're exploring what we, could, what we could do there as well. Yeah, and like you say, it's a time-consuming process. But as I mentioned before, it's something that I've looked into, people have been looking into for years, I'm sure, and have never started that process. So you're clearly um, doing awesome work and progressing really quickly um, within the constraints of legality and everything else that you need to work through so i think it's awesome um and so your your website is 999feedback.org is that right yeah that's right 
Awesome. So people can um, look, go on that website. I, I had a look at it before I spoke to you and there's quite a lot of information about the project for people that are interested in it. Um, and as we've kind of discussed through the episodes, um, those uh, videos with Gordon and some other kind of case studies uh, and conversations with people, which was, yeah, so they're all available on YouTube. And I've really encouraged people to watch those because it's really interesting to kind of learn a bit more about the process. Um, before we kind of close then, do you have any kind of finishing comments um, or anything you'd like to say about the project for people um, before we finish? I think we would just be um, very interested and we'll be more than, <clears throat> sorry, more than happy to answer any questions um, that anyone has and sort of get in touch if they want to get uh, started with their own projects, we'll be more than happy to sort of have those conversations and, and give them any help that they need. Yeah, and from my perspective, I think it's it's important to recognise the benefits of this from a hospital point of view as well. And it's easy to assume that this is something that, that only really benefits the, the paramedics and the pre-hospital teams. But actually, this this provides huge benefits to the emergency medicine clinicians who are who are involved in writing these reports and can really improve the relationship between between the pre-hospital teams and between the the hospital. And so, it's got huge benefits for the hospitals that are involved as well. Awesome. Well, guys, I really appreciate you coming on and speaking to me. Um, like I say, from my perspective, it's, it's such a, uh, an awesome and really interesting project um, and something I think we've been waiting for, um, certainly in terms of pre-hospital practice for a long time. So it's great to hear a bit more about it. And I appreciate you coming on and um, having a chat to me about it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. No worries. And for those that are more interested in learning a bit more, um, like I say, the website is 999feedback.org. And uh, on Twitter, what is your handle? Uh, at FemFeedback. Perfect. Cheers for that. And so I'll stick um, some of those links in the show notes. And um, yeah, like I say, thanks again for coming on. And I look forward to hearing more about the project as it develops in the future. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 